Welcome to the second installment of our mini-series exploring systemic bias and racism in healthcare. I'm Dr. Charlotte Johnson, and you are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast, which is a program of Movement is Life. In our last episode, we took a deep dive into different types of unconscious bias, what they are, how we measure them, their consequences and actions we can take to unlearn bias. In this episode, we have a roundtable discussion to continue that exploration in a more conversational format. We are all experienced healthcare practitioners, and so I'm sure we can all share real experiences relating to that subject from the front line, so to speak. My background is in the specialty of orthopedic nursing and in nursing informatics, and I'm the Director of Clinical Information Systems in Nursing Informatics at Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady Health System in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Melvin Harrington, orthopedic surgeon and vice chair of community engagement and health equity at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Welcome, Dr. Harrington. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm also delighted to be joined by Dr. Elena Rios, who serves as the president and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's get into our subject and start with sharing what we see as definitions and bias, and then perhaps share a couple of examples of how unconscious or implicit bias might be expressed. Firstly, maybe how a patient might experience bias and also how a patient might express bias. So let's start with you, Dr. Harrington. Well, implicit bias is something that we all have. You know, it's something in our subconscious. That's why we call it unconscious or implicit bias. And it, you know, affects our treatment of uh, others based on those uh, biases. Um, we see it in healthcare as it can lead to uh, adverse effects and uh, treatments of uh, patients. For example, a lot of it can be simple stereotyping based on uh, the patient's race, ethnicity, gender, um, body habitus. Um, there's huge implicit biases against uh, the obese. And so um, just the way that uh, people are treated based on those biases can uh, adversely affect their uh, health care. Even on the patient side, for example, um, as an African-American orthopedic surgeon, patients will often ask me after I have talked to them about scheduling their hip or knee replacement, gone through the risks of surgery and talked about the whole process, they will ask me if I'm the surgeon. Don't know if that is a microaggression, implicit bias, or just a basic question because I'm in a complex academic center with lots of different people. But, you know, it does, uh, you know, play a role in how we as providers are uh, perceived. Thank you. They say that the brain makes decisions up to like 10 seconds before we even know that we're even processing information and responding to it. And so I believe that we do default into our unconscious thoughts, right? And and we do that more. We lean into that more when we're overwhelmed or stressed and juggling multiple things. And I think that just describes the everyday life of a healthcare provider, right? <laughs> what you're having right. to do in the <laughs> world as you're dealing with patients. So um, thank you for giving us those descriptions. Dr. Rios, please add your thoughts. Yeah, well, I think bias has to do with 
the issues around your values, a, a person's values uh, come from their family, come from their upbringing, come from places that they've lived. And oftentimes, people that live in a certain area of the country, let's say, that is not uh, very uh, heterogeneous, <laughs> have bias because they don't know about other people. So if it's all a black community, they may not know how to deal with white people. If it's a Hispanic community, they may not know how to deal with black people. I'm just saying that anybody can be biased based on their on, on what how they've grown up and also their values. Uh, and I'll just say that we usually translate the word bias into uh, being uh, treating people with stereotypes. Well, stereotyping is, uh, I guess, a generality about people. And without understanding that you should respect where people come from and the culture and the values that the person has, it's very easy to get into the problem of using a stereotype and not even knowing how you're affecting the other person that you're communicating with or trying to communicate with. And I think that that's the problem with using stereotypes when you're in a conversation such as a doctor-patient conversation or in a or in or in training and medical education using stereotypes can often offend someone who sees that who recognizes the stereotype we see implicit bias all the time and and honestly it can be in direct verbal communication but it can also be uh informal uh communication non-verbal communication the way you your tone of voice the white coat syndrome where a doctor uses a white coat and patients just, you know, can't talk because they're in shock or in awe. And uh, there's also informal body language, like uh, standing up in, and having the patient sit down at a exam table and, you know, towering over a person makes that person feel very, uh, I'll just say it's very humbling to a person who's sick. And again, doesn't want to speak up or, answer questions they're 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 uh, they're not very comfortable in a situation where, where they feel uh, that there is some change in communication uh, pattern that they're not used to you know and I would add that from a nursing perspective and then from an informatics perspective I think about the electronic health record and when biased I can see when you know a clinician opens the record, and what they first thing they see in the medical record or diagnosis, right? So it could be obesity and um, the comorbidities associated with that and metabolic syndrome and anxiety and depression and all those things. And, you know, then they look over at the, the BMI and they've already began to kind of shift and form opinions around that patient before they've even had a chance to even examine the patient or focus on patient-centered care. And I know for me, from an informatics space, I really hope that those collection of social determinants of health data can actually begin to kind of peel back some of those biases. Because when we begin to ask the whys have we gotten here, that maybe that in itself can help. And that's what I'm encouraged about as a nurse in informatics as we go into that new space. Um, and expand on this a little further. When we see underrepresentation of African Americans and um, Hispanics in the healthcare workforce, 
is bias acting as a gatekeeper in that situation? And, and how big would that problem be? Dr. Rios? It's been, well, you know, medical, uh, the medical profession is a, is a, um, I'm going to say, a, you know, an, an old boys network. <laughs> it, it is a, a professional group uh, that is usually determined by the admissions process to medical school and the admissions faculty or uh, others who are part of the, the admissions process uh, may triage people with bias, again, implicit bias, just because they don't understand where that person came from or the value of the person's application if they don't look at the application with a holistic viewpoint and they're just looking at grades or MCAT scores or looking at uh, what university they came from. So there, bec there becomes this implicit bias in admissions. And, and the other issue with admissions is most of the faculty in our medical schools are not Hispanic or Black. In fact, there's very probably, you know, one one to two percent of faculty that are on admissions committees are, are Black or Hispanic. So there's a lot of ignorance, just the way the system's set up for bias to, to, uh, to increase and be a gatekeeper, like you said, uh, for keeping keeping us out or keeping keeping the black and Hispanic uh, medical students at a underrepresented level compared to the population that is growing. Uh, you know, Hispanics are going to be one out of four Americans in the next 10 years. And by 2060, they're supposed to be one third of the United States population. And we're never going to catch up when only 6% of the doctors are Hispanic. Dr. Harrington, your thoughts? I think it is uh, both implicit and explicit uh, bias and um, really lots of systemic factors. Um, in terms of uh, just getting into the healthcare fields, you know, it starts with education, which already in this country has uh, huge uh, historical systemic uh, disparities and, uh, and problems and barriers. And so the challenges Number one, starting at the early ages of getting kids through grade school and high school and even into college, and then trying to get uh, kids from college interested in the sciences and into medical school and the health profession. Those systemic issues uh, are a major issue. And then uh, when I look at what I do in terms of uh, residency uh, selection and choosing uh, medical students who are applying for orthopedic surgery residencies, uh, we are the least diverse field in medicine. So, you know, a lot of our uh, selection process becomes much more subjective uh, and less objective. And so implicit and some explicit biases certainly play a role in who gets selected for various uh, surgical fields. You know, I had a thought when you were saying that where I was a mentor to a um, young man in his master's program and uh, African-American. And he told me, he was sharing his story with me. And he said that when he went to a college, he, you know, he was on a, he had a, the academics and he was on a um, athletic scholarship, but he was wanting to be pre-med and his enrollment to that program, they, they denied him. And they steered him towards nursing 
and um, said that if he passed the nursing courses, then they would allow him to go pre-med. And I think about, you know, what bias was going on there, right, um, to, to lead him away from his calling, his profession. And I'm thankful that nursing has him. But then I think what his dream would have been and how someone stifled that. So you're right, it does impact that. Dr. Rios, how about you? I noticed that in Maryland, it's one of the first states to pass legislation requiring bias training every two years. So what are your thoughts on implicit bias training? I think it's very worthwhile. I've, I've been a part of the uh, uh, bias training, or I should say anti-bias training. Uh, I was on a board of directors of a local uh, company that was one of the first companies to actually do it for all of their staff and the board of directors. The um, the idea of, of uh, having a safe space for people's hidden biases to come out. People don't re realize that they have bias until you go through a training like that where you are asked to think hard about your upbringing and, and to also learn how to deal with issues of uh, disrespect to others, really, that's how to be more respectful, and how to also discuss the issues with others in your space, you know, at your hospital or in your medical school or your clinic, uh, so that you all feel um, more. Uh, uh, just say, I think, I think it's it's a feeling of of pride that the organization that you're a part of that has gone through this training is able to move forward and move beyond these issues that come up from not talking about them. You don't realize how many people have bias towards someone else because that other person is something, is a different type of person that they just hadn't been around and didn't know, you know, and it's not just racial bias or we're talking about it, racial and ethnic bias, but there's also biases just from somebody who's in rural America versus somebody who's urban. So there's lots of ways that we find out, we identify different biases and stereotypes that we all have. It's not negative. I think it's just the way we've been brought up. So Dr. Herring, could you talk about what's happening in your institution and how do you, uh, how do people generally respond to this bias training? Hmm. Um, I think it's really variable. Um, you know, I'm fortunate that uh, Baylor College of Medicine is one of the most uh, diverse uh, health science institutions in the country. Uh, so uh, it's actually pretty well received, but there are uh, there, there are pockets of resistance. There are some people who don't necessarily believe um, that it exists. Um, you know, we try to uh, encourage uh, training for uh, everyone. Uh, we uh, encourage everyone, particularly those of us who are involved in any uh, hiring selection processes, whether it is for uh, faculty members, uh, graduate education or uh, med school admissions uh, to complete uh, training, and it's part of the uh, medical school uh, curriculum. Um, but there is still some resistance, and I know there are there have been concerns expressed, uh, you know, in different areas of whether uh, implicit bias training actually encourages stereotyping or, uh, you know, potentially uh, you know, makes makes things worse rather than better. But I think it's still a positive to for people to be aware that they may have biases because I think that's the 
the big thing is that the vast majority of uh, folks who who want to do the right thing may not realize that there are implicit biases and it can hopefully positively affect their decision-making process in the future. Right, right. Thank you. I do know that, you know, with CMS, their uh, mandate for hospitals to begin attesting um, to their commitment to health equity, that is one of the areas that I know healthcare organizations, the inpatient hospital settings, um, are having to kind of demonstrate and have evidence for their commitment to health equity using things like DEI and what type of training, culturally sensitive training and things like that as part of these initiatives. So um, I'm hoping that the awareness would make a difference. But, you know, there are, like you just said, there are concerns that does it actually, you know, cause the pendulum to go the other way. For the next part of our discussion, I want to tease out some differences between structural and systemic bias in general, and in particular, structural and systemic racism. Dr. Rios, how do you explain systemic racism to someone who needs an introduction to the concept? Well, I, you know, coming from medical education and training, I think it's about the health system. And some people say we don't have a health system, but we do. We have a we have a again. A, it's a profession of doctors and nurses, and and also our allied health uh, colleagues. And we work in hospitals and clinics and medical practices, and that all have rules uh, for workflow, right? For the for efficient workflow. And I think the system that is set up uh, within these different places, uh, like uh, medical education, for example, have bias or racist tendencies. One of the most obvious one, if you go to any hospital in the country, these large hospitals are, you know, the the top layer of leadership, whether it's the board of trustees or the C-suite, the CEOs, COOs, all those vice presidents are usually white, are usually people who have been able to uh, get educated. They didn't come from poor backgrounds. Uh, they went to higher education and they learned how to uh, network with others, go to conferences, and they learned how to be uh, introduced to people so that they could apply for jobs and get hired in a way that Hispanic and Black people who are not educated and not part of the upper echelons in our communities where they would be introduced to leaders of hospitals, and I'm talking just community hospitals, you want to say university hospitals, whatever, but there's a whole uh, networking, I'll say game for one of another word, but there is a networking game within medical, uh, the medical system or the health system. The same with the CEOs of insurance companies and probably the upper management of pharma companies and other, uh, other major institutions within healthcare. It's a network and it's also uh, who's invited to the network. And that's why we call it systemic bias, because the whole system is is a top-down approach. Decisions and programs are set up by people who don't realize they're biased. And that's the importance of having more focus now on diversity and, and uh, training and, and education. There's a lot of needs to change that will change the, uh, the system, the health system or any other system. Training and professionalism is very siloed. 
So doctors are all focused on critical thinking for the purpose of making a diagnosis and treating patients the best way they can using laboratory uh, and imaging or and using management tools like medications and you know radiation or what ha- what have you chemotherapy so there's not a whole lot of time to think about racism i don't think people even think about it and that's why the importance of training uh, in terms of the uh, structural racism i think people do know a little bit more about that but they don't again it's not front and center in the day in the life of a doctor or a nurse who are focused on their patient and patient care, clinical care. Structural racism to me is what we call the social determinants of health. The idea that wherever you work, play, live, pray, you know, church, all of those institutions within your community or all of those um, drivers of health impact the, the life of that person. And usually we think of social determinants of health or social drivers of health for the patients, about the patients. The So the, you know, how often the doctor thinks about what the patient is going through, I think is dependent on how the relationship between the doctor and the patient is. So how long they've known each other, um, perhaps they, you know, get into more small talk, learn about their family, their family situation, the challenges, the stressors. So to get back to the concept, structure to me means poverty or, you know, not having food to eat, uh, good food to eat, nutritious food, you know, having too many sodas that cause you to get more obese faster uh, or to to have uh, overcrowded housing with intergenerational housing. We saw the COVID-19 virus spread through a lot of you know, na- uh, neighborhoods with with uh, older people living with younger people, and it was the younger people that went out and worked, or went out and and uh, yeah, socialized with their friends, and then brought it back to the elderly who were who had more chronic conditions. And, and unfortunately, in our communities, a lot of families saw death of elderly patients. It, and and then there's lack of transportation, lack of childcare, all kinds of issues because you have because of low income jobs or 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 financing problems uh you have a lot of issues that that we call structural it's the way the structure is set up in our society there is a reason why people are in poverty they can't they 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 don't have the education to get a better job or they can't get the financing from banks to buy a home there's just a lot of different issues surrounding structural, what we call structural racism, what I think is structural racism. Dr. Harrington, how would you describe structural racism and how is it different from systemic racism? Well, I think that systemic racism is something that's sort of built into the system. Um, You know, it's based on, for example, the prior laws in the country that were, may have had a racist bias or rules and um, that have, that have been enforced and um, have you know been in place over time. I think the structural racism is sort of what has become sort of the accepted norm and a lot of that is based on those prior uh, rules and laws and things but it's sort of what has been accepted uh, by society as just sort of the way things are, um, which is not necessarily, Correct. 
Dr. Harrington, what are some examples of bias that you have personally witnessed in practice? Um, I think probably one that I see quite uh, commonly is a bias against obesity. Um, you know, there's documentation within the orthopedic literature showing that obese patients have higher uh, complication rates after surgery. And so um, many of us have uh, developed uh, screening processes and um, you know, even cutoffs for uh, body mass index or weight uh, candidates to be surgery. And we see patients all the time who are shipped around and, you know, sometimes even ignored uh, because of the And I think one of the biggest challenges is, you know, obesity is a problem that is challenging for all of us. And, um, you know, one of the things that we try to do to mitigate the bias and the uh, problems is finding solutions for the patients rather than just saying, you're overweight, go away. Um, it's like, okay, you're overweight. These are the concerns that we have with, you know, obesity and com potential complications. And then here, let's try these things to help work on that. It's medically optimized rather than just focusing on the weight or Yeah, thank you. I I saw some literature that talked about um, obesity from a bias standpoint, and it said that the perception was that laziness and they were less likely to comply with medical treatment. So you know the complexity of when you see someone that's obese and then you're you're already in your mind as a clinician thinking they're not going to comply with what I'm giving. So am I even going to give them the treatment? I mean, you can see how that could, could stop care, delay or impact the, the, the type of care that is delivered. You know, I know in healthcare, also in the literature I've, I've seen, especially around the orthopedic space and musculoskeletal space, talking about women in pain, the bias with, you know, women in pain where women are more demonstrative, so therefore, their pain rating scale is really not what it says. So we're not going to give them as much versus a man. He's more stoic. So therefore, his pain rating scale isn't really what he says either. So I'm going to give him more <laughs> or offer him different treatment. So just that bias, just with pain and gender. And I know that they've I've seen where in African-Americans, so if you throw race in there, where African-Americans are typically... Um, can be prescribed less pain medicine for the same pain rating. And so, you know, you just wonder about those inequities. Um, I also saw from, and I think through these lenses around social determinants, like the lower social economic status, they, uh, when you perceived as someone less responsible, less intelligent, less rational, less compliant, um, if you have an age patient, then you're discounting their pain as, well, it's just normal aging. So then you discount their level of rating pain. So, yeah, there was it's interesting how bias can really impact and to me from a, as a clinician, the awareness of the bias or, and do I have a bias when someone's given me, you know, sharing something with me, what am I thinking, right? Because we lean into those unconscious thoughts before we've even had a chance to process. So reflection, I think, is key, right? That stop, pause, think, uh, to really overcome those biases. 
Yeah, and I think that's where the implicit bias training, even though there is certainly resistance against it, I think just being aware so that you stop before you stop and think before you make your snap judgment. Bias. Right. Dr. Rios, your thoughts. It's very disappointing that people become disenchanted with going to back to see a doctor if they become disrespected and feel like they're they're being biased. And I think that um, that's the ultimate um, disappointment in the health system the way it's set up now. So if we have more people from the community, the community health worker movement, the the idea of having navigators, the idea of having bilingual doctors, bilingual nurses. I mean, who would have thought we'd need bilingual anything in this country because everybody talks English. But in fact, it's the second largest, the, the country with the second largest language is uh, Spanish. And I think we have more Spanish speakers, at least Spanish speaking in the home. And most people that are elderly revert back to the language that they come from, that they had when they grew up. They feel more comfortable with with Spanish. I'll just talk about you know the Latino population who have been native Spanish speakers or come from other countries or even Puerto Rico, which is the United States, but they're very much more comfortable in speaking Spanish in the Caribbean, right? There's a real importance to having bilingual staff, uh, bilingual services, uh, but you can't expect every doctor to, to, to be able to pick up a second language you know, as an adult but I do think that it is important. Medical education should include Spanish uh, language. Uh, it, it has become more of a, a kind of a, an elective uh, with students, uh, you know, students who know Spanish and teaching other students. But I think that medical schools, especially in those communities with Span large Spanish speaking patients should have um, uh, medical education training yeah, and the healthcare system sees more older patients that end up with the chronic disease where they have to come in more regularly to see the doctor to get treatment. And, uh, and we don't realize that. That's another bias, right? That everybody in medical school is very young and nurses are young, the hospital workers are young, and then you get all these old people coming in for care. And that's just another, another uh, you know, another need that needs to be cha a challenge and a need that needs to be looked at. Dr. Harrington, have you experienced where you feel like you were biased against? I know you mentioned a, a comment where, you know, someone asked, were you even the, uh, the doctor part of the care, but where someone has said they didn't want you part of their care because of your race? Um, fortunately, not that often. Um, uh, ironically, uh, one of the uh, situations that I I sort of found humorous was uh, when I, I was in practice in Chicago years ago, and we had a African American woman was one of our residents, and a patient uh, said that he he did not want her taking care of him. And the ironic thing was that it was a young African American male patient, and so uh, my my colleague who was the attending for the patient, uh, you know, was not having it. And so uh, his his humorous approach to it was to have asked me to go and talk to the patient <laughs> to, see, to see if the uh, comment remained the same. And uh, when I when I approached the patient, he, he was perfectly okay with having uh, the, the African-American woman 
physician and myself <laughs> and the others as his care team. But um, yeah, so, you know, we do, I do get the comments, you know, I d- have not had fortunately any direct comments. Now I, you know, there are some folks who probably came to see me once and didn't come back, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I may not have known about that. What I've seen in the literature is around organizations are really beginning to develop processes to determine actually how to respond to those type of requests when a patient says they don't want someone as their caregiver. You know, they develop some type of an algorithm, like is it a, you know, a cultural or religious reason or would their care be compromised in some way if the request was not granted? And it's kind of hard to believe that we actually have to put processes in place to manage this, but there are different types of requests as well as behaviors or aggression or harassment that clinicians face as well that could be based on these um, on racist uh, attitudes. I would say probably one of the more common things that I get asked, uh, particularly if I'm asked for uh, to refer a patient to another physician, uh, one of the comments I, I get asked is, oh, can, you know, do, the, do they speak English well? And, you know, if, I, if I'm sending them to someone with a uh, more foreign sounding name, um, you know, they, you know, like, oh, I, I want a doctor who speaks English. Gotcha. So that, that's always, a, you know, one of the more common things that I see. You know, when you, and when you, but when you peel that onion back, sometimes you really have to look at that lens too, where it's coming from. Is it coming from a, a space of, I only want an English speaking or mm-hmm. I, I have, you know, if you have an aged person who has hard of hearing, yeah. it's very difficult when someone's speaking yeah. clear Anglo-Saxon English versus culturally mm-hmm. someone different. I, I just, I know of my husband has um, a, a speech challenge right now and that is actually someone who's hard of hearing. It's very, very difficult. And he's speaking clear English, but there is just a little bit of a slur with it. So, you know, you have to peel those onions back because we can feel that it could be that that way. So what extent do you think healthcare professionals understand like this balance between structural and systemic racism? Do you think we understand it enough I don't think anyone in our society as a whole understands it enough or recognizes it or, you know, maybe necessarily even wants to to understand it. I think uh, training is good so people recognize it. Um, You know, it it really, I think, to change it is more of a societal issue. You know, I think it'd be nice if, if we can get to a place where we could actually have a dialogue about race in a place, not a safe space, because that's not it, right? Because it's, it's not about that. It's more in a, a place where people can just be comfortable to share their thoughts and ideas so that they can listen to understand someone else's perspective and be heard, and then to allow reflection, then to process their own growth, right? I don't, I don't think that's a one and done. I don't think I can take a training and think differently. I think I need to take a training gain awareness, reflect, apply it, right? Reflect, improve. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a cycle. I don't think we'll, like you're saying, I don't know that we'll ever 
get there because it's like everything else. It's a, it's a cycle or an evolution of, of change. Do you think our patients, I know we, we speak different language for sure. So do you think our patients understand structural and systemic racism? Um, I think some of our, probably our, our older uh, minority patients do <laughs> uh, just having grown up uh, when, when the, when the, Implicit was uh, totally explicit, um, so I think they understand, and I think a lot of it is, um, you know, understanding the history and the actual racist laws that were in effect that caused so much of the disparities and things, you know, from the redlining to the, you know, Voting Rights Act to, you know, all of these right. things that were just part of the U.S. system uh, growing up, so... Our, our younger folks, I don't think they have that history. And um, so I think it does need to be, you know, taught in schools and, you know, just at a bigger level so that people are, are aware of where things started and why things are the way they are. Right. Dr. Rios. Yeah, the National Hispanic Medical Association uh, prides itself in bringing together experts who are doctors who take care of Hispanic patients. They may not be Hispanic themselves, but I think what we've been able to do is uh, have doctors come together and understand what's most important, what we call cultural competence in training each other uh, to take care of other uh, of Latino patients uh, at different ages, whether it's the pedi pediatric population or the geriatric population. And we do that in different ways. One of them is uh, having webinars uh, and I'll give you an example. We've had webinars on vaccinations and how to get more people to think about the importance of vaccinations, especially adults. Uh, you know, in this country, children uh, are mandated to have vaccination to go into schools. Uh, there's, there's some exceptions, I guess, some religious exceptions, but for the most part, adults were never a focus. And we learned through the pandemic how important it was for essential workers who are adults to be able to, to get more health care and more vaccination uh, to avoid hospitalization. So we've had webinars, um, uh, quarterly webinars, with doctors who take care of Hispanic patients on how they talk to them about prevention and vaccinations as an example of prevention, how to get people to understand that they should see a doctor. Um, and it's hard because many of many people in our communities don't have insurance. So, you know, even talking about Medicaid this year, right, with the Medicaid unwinding, we have a lot more uh, doctors that are interested in being speakers at community events. Um, so we're always nominating doctors to do things to be able to educate other doctors or um, uh, groups of, of, of uh, people who can tell patients, those who are becoming patients, right, uh, to go to the health care, the importance of going to uh, getting health care. So that's just one example. I mean, we have mentoring and leadership development programs, mentoring of, of pre-med students, mentoring of medical students, mentoring of residents to help them advance in their careers. Uh, and we're always able to find doctors ahead of them, medical students for pre-meds, residents for medical students, et cetera, who all want to share the kinds of biases that they've seen or have, uh, or the cultural nuances that they've had to use 
in communicating to patients uh, and in working with their own doctors and attendings and how to, you know, how to, how to understand that they have to speak up and not be humble, like we're all trained to be, and and to to really become uh, better at uh, being at the table when it comes to decision making about their patients or decision making in uh, committees as they become leaders and that type of thing. So we we we've been very involved with advancing careers, um, and 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 like you said, it's important that we help our own people get uh, higher levels positions so they can have jobs for others in their communities. Many thanks to Dr. Harrington and Dr. Rios for sharing your perspective today. It's been fascinating and it really brings home how embedded systemic racism is within our healthcare systems and more broadly as structural racism within society as a whole. We will continue to explore this subject in our next episode where we discuss specific examples of systemic racism and race-based clinical decision-making that are impacting specific populations negatively. Then in our final episode, we will explore initiatives that are tackling bias. So until then, thank you to our listeners for joining us. Be safe and be well. Copyright Movement is Life 2023.